Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. In 1894, the Times newspaper of London ran a headline that said, Manure Crisis. Just two words, manure crisis. Now, you can probably think of a lot of things that would be a crisis in our lifetimes and things that we would be concerned about, and we've certainly had a lot of them in our culture where we say these things are a crisis, but as far as I, when I hear it, I think manure crisis, that's bad. That's really bad. It sounds like people are going to be like under a pile of crap, which literally was the problem and what everybody was worried about. You see, in London and in other large cities in the world at that time, the the primary way of getting people around the city was by horse. And horses produce a lot of poop. Actually, one horse would produce 30 pounds of manure per day and two pints of urine. So when you start thinking about that, that's just one horse. In London in 1894, there were 50,000 horses on the streets in London. New York had it worse. New York had 100,000 horses on the streets. So you run the math on that. That's a lot of manure that's getting produced every single day. Um, and, it, and it was a crisis because where do you put all that? Uh, they would shovel it and they ended up putting all of it into empty lots and they, they had piles of manure like 50 or 60 feet high that, that was going on in these cities. So not only does that smell really bad, but it's a big health crisis, right? Like what are we going to do? It breeds disease, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was a big deal. It was such a big deal that everyone came together for a three-day conference in London about what are we going to do about manure. And so they came together uh, and they met for multiple days in this conference to try to figure out what we're going to do. I don't know what kind of conferences you go to for work, but imagine the breakout sessions that you have at the manure crisis conference. That's what they were doing. So people are doing this for multiple days, and then at the end of it, they basically just quit because they couldn't figure out what to do. Like, everyone left the conference completely hopeless and feeling like there's, there's no way out of this thing. Um, now, if you've ever been to London, if you've been there recently, you'll know that I guess they got out of the crisis because right now it's a, it's a very clean city. So something happened to kind of solve that problem. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. But I thought about that this week as I thought about uh, what we're dealing with as a culture right now and at, at really at, at in the globe. Uh, we have something that people are calling a crisis on our hands. Um, and it's a big deal the, with, with health concerns for people, uh, people dying, with, uh, with the stock market kind of yo-yoing and, and all these concerns about the economy and, and stuff. There's a lot out there right now, and, and people are, uh, are, are really freaking out. And I get it. I've read the reports. I see the things. I follow the news. Um, plus, I've seen the movie Contagion. Um, I've seen World War Z, so my, my imagination can go really far about how bad this will get, you know, like, okay, this could get really bad, you guys, I've seen it, I've seen it. So I, I, I can imagine that stuff too. Um, and so I, I, I'm concerned like everyone else is, but, but mostly what I've been thinking about this week is just me and my own life, my own family, how, how should I respond with my family? Um, and then how should the people of God respond when we're tempted to worry? Um, because we, we get, we get, we freak out. I'm not concerned how is the culture going to freak out. Everyone in the culture is going to do what they, what they do. But what should the people of God be doing, people who claim the name of Jesus, how should we actually respond when, when things uh, seem scary? And is there a better way than worrying and freaking out? And, and what would be that better way? 
Now, what I want to do is quote to you what Jesus says about worry and just say, oh, well, this is it, and this is what he said, and this is it, and we can just go home. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, including your toilet paper. These, that's my edit. That's not in there. Jesus says to us, hey, don't worry, right? Like, that's basically what he says. Don't freak out about all the things that you go, oh, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? Jesus' main point is, um, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. God knows you need these things. Just seek after him, and he will add all those things to you. Um, and that sounds right, and it is right, and it's, and it's the truth, and it's from Jesus. But worry is such an emotional thing, and it can get its hooks into us. And so even though we can read that and go, yeah, intellectually, I know that's true, there, there's a problem. And, and, and you can't just say to someone who's worrying, hey, don't worry. That doesn't usually go well. It's sort of like saying, don't be angry. Uh, don't be so sad. Like, it's, it's what we're feeling in the moment. And so how do we, how do we handle that? How are we going to dig deeper on that? We're wrapping up our series uh, today called Better and we've been talking about how we can be better and, and different habits and different things that we can adopt into our lives to help us live better lives and become who God is calling us to be. And it's weird because we planned this message three months ago, and then here we are talking about not freaking out at the very time that, we're, that a lot of people are very concerned. And so I, I didn't know this was going to happen, but the Lord knew and, and was ready for this, for this moment. So I, I think this is very timely and something that we need to talk about today. And so to do that, I really want to take us to maybe one of the most cheerful chapters in the most cheerful book in all of the Bible, uh, Philippians chapter 4. And I want us to hear Paul's words there. A couple weeks ago, at the beginning of this series, we read Philippians 4, 8 through 13. I want to back up and get start with verse 4. Listen to what Paul says to this church, and then I'll give you some context for it. He starts with this, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. So uh, be happy, celebrate, have joy within you. Understand the context that Paul says this. He's writing a letter to the church in Philippi. Philippi is in ancient and modern-day Greece. Uh, it's this ancient city there. And um, let me tell you where Paul is. Paul's writing from jail. So he's in a hole in the ground. A Roman jail would be a hole in the ground in the city of Rome. He's in jail. He's being uh, you know, poorly fed, probably. He's, he's kind of down there in a hole. You can sort of imagine him writing by candlelight or whatever. And he's writing this letter, and he's writing a cheerful letter. Him, in, in those circumstances, in, in the darkest of dark, He's writing a cheerful letter to this church in, in, in Philippi. Now, the early Christians that were in this church in Philippi, they believed some things that were starting to put them at odds with their neighbors. Um, let me, I, I, I looked at just a couple of them. This is how weird the early Christians were, and, and I'll explain why this matters in a second. The early Christians believed in things like, number one, monogamy. Their, their neighbors did not believe in that. They, they thought you should just share wives and have multiple partners and all that. So Christians come along, they're weird because they're into monogamy. Number two, monotheism. They believe that there's one God. And in the Greek and Roman world, that's weird because they believe in all sorts of gods. So the Christians are weird again because they believe there's all those other gods are fake and there's only one. They believe, number three, that they would take communion together and they, would believe, and they believe that this is the body and blood of Christ that they're celebrating. 
That may not seem weird to us because we do it a lot, but when they first started doing that as the early Christians, the Romans thought they were crazy. They thought they were literally cannibals and that they were eating the body and blood of Christ every week when they got together. So the Christians were very weird. Um, number four, they believed in adoption over exposure. Uh, a, a common thing in that culture was if you didn't want a baby, you would give birth and just leave it at the side of the road to be, to be taken. Uh, and the Christians came along and said, that's horrible. These children are created in the image of God. And they would, they would pick them up and, and adopt them and kind of rescue these kids. So that made them weird also with, with their neighbors. Um, and number five, they believed in pooling of resources to care for the poor. In a dog-eat-dog in a dog sort of world of the Roman Empire, you know, you get yours, you take care of yours, the Christians are coming along going, no, let's share all of our stuff, or, or let's, let's give money, contribute together so that the, we can take care of the greater good, so that if I have a little extra, I can help out this person who doesn't have extra. Um, and all of these things that the Christians believe and more put them at odds with all their neighbors. Their neighbors thought they were weird. They thought they were um, awkward at best and, and, and wrong and evil at, at worst. And so Paul is writing a letter from jail to a group of people who are starting to be persecuted for what they believe. The big persecutions in the Roman Empire start around 60 AD uh, with Nero and, and, and others. And, and so the Christians are starting to feel the pressure where people don't, don't like them. And Paul tells that group of people from jail, he tells that persecuted group of people to rejoice always. Now, where does your mind go when we read that? If I say to you, like, hey, rejoice always. This is what you should be doing. It's weird, right? I think where my mind goes is rejoice always. That's, like, super not practical. Like, I, I just, I can't. Maybe other people can who are, like, upbeat. But me in a, like, general sort of, like, cynical, which I like to call realistic uh, view of the world, I can't rejoice all the time. That's what other people do. That's not, that's not me. But notice that when I say that or when we would say that kind of thing, that lets us off the hook from even trying. We're not even going to try. We're just going to go, oh, I'm not a rejoicing kind of person. Therefore, I don't have to listen to what it says. What if we took this as this is real advice for real people meant to be lived out in the real world? What if we said, oh, no, I, I could rejoice always, too. There, this has got to be a way to do it. Because if you think it's impossible, you'll dismiss it out of hand. But if you think it's, it's doable, um, you may really get something. If you don't try it because you think it's too hard, nothing changes. But if you say, it is possible for me to rejoice always, like I'm told in Scripture, well, then something might change. Imagine yourself as the kind of person who can rejoice always. Imagine being the kind of person that even when hard things come, even when it's scary, even when the news is crazy, you can be a person who rejoices always. Do you think that would affect your mental health? Do you think you'd be happier? you think you'd not worry as much? So step number one for us when we're facing crisis, when we're tempted to worry, is this. Be intentional about your rejoicing. Go like, I choose to do this. Um, Paul doesn't say rejoice. Again, I say rejoice if you feel like it. It's not tied to your mood. It is a, it's a choice you make. And you go, okay, I, I will rejoice no, no, matter, no matter what. You can thank God for all the things that are happening or have happened and, and rejoice and show gratitude. And you can do that intentionally. You could practice it. You could write it down every day. Or you can choose to be bitter and blame God for all the things that are happening. The choice is yours. But that's not all he gives us. It's not just rejoice and that's it. 
he gives us more here. And, th- and this is, um, if you're following along with Core 52, this will be a memory verse for this week. This is maybe one of the best verses in the New Testament. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be, listen to this, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if number one is to be intentional about our rejoicing, number two is to pray about the things that have you worried. Inevitably, things are going to come up. No matter how you live your life, you can't, you can't plan for this, but things will come up that are going to make you worried. Um, and, 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 and all of the being told don't worry is not going to change that. You're going to feel this. It's going to kick up in your heart, in your soul. You're going to worry, um, and, and you have to have somewhere to go with that. I think our worries fall into two categories, really. There, I, I haven't seen anybody call them. This is just the way I was thinking about them. There's like macro worries, and then there's micro worries. So macro worries are like, hey, these are big systemic things that I have no control over. Coronavirus is probably a great example. Here's this big thing that's way bigger than me. I don't know what to do. I don't have control. I'm going to worry about it. How the economy is affected, the stock market goes on down. I can't do anything about that. I have no control. Um, And really, there's a lot of things that you have no control over. Your mother-in-law. Your, your, you know, the economy, your, 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 how your boss is going to react at work. Like, you don't have as much control of these things as you think you do. But there are these macro worries, large systemic things, oh, you know, the, the big meteor of death is coming. Like, what am I going to do? Like, and we can't control it. And then there's micro worries. These things are things that feel like they're more in our control and they're closer to us. So, you know, uh, how, what precautions am I going to take in my own home? Um, you know, what am I going to do today? How hard will I work and what kind of results will that, will that bring me in the job? Um, about how, how my relationships, who am I going to talk to? How am I going to talk to someone? These are things we worry about. Oh, what does my, what does my mother think? And, and what about this brokenness with my brother? And my, my girlfriend thinks this, my boyfriend's this way. Like these are things that are a little closer to us, the, the, the micro worries that we all have. But here's the deal with all of those worries, when you drill down into them, underneath them, what you find is fear. We're afraid. That's, that's at the heart of it all, right, is, is, is fear. Fear is the thing that whispers what if in your ear. Fear says, what if it doesn't work out? What if she leaves? What if the economy tanks? What if your job still isn't there? What if I get sick? Fear talks, and fear always starts with those words, what if? And that's real, and we feel it, and it's visceral. When we worry, we're afraid. And I don't know about you, but I can can run the worst scenarios in my head about things that are going to happen, about all the things. Um, I, I do this pretty regularly. When I drive in a car on an interstate, I imagine the car flipping over him, getting into a terrible accident. I don't know why. That image comes into my head so often when I'm driving. I, I picture how badly this is going to go. I was in a small car accident a few, a few months ago, and that still is in my head. I remember what it sounded like when things hit and the airbags opened and all that stuff. And so because that's real and it, and it, it fires off all the senses when something like that happens, and many of you have probably experienced this, uh, 
I, I worry. I, I worry about it, and I think about it when I drive, like, oh, this could go really badly. And so there's this graph, maybe you've seen this. Uh, I, I found this online about how not to worry. And if you look at it, um, I, I've seen it listed as, I don't know, maybe it's just a thinking thing. Maybe it's just like a, uh, I've seen it listed like on some Buddhist sites and things like that. But it's just this idea that, um, hey, do you have a problem? Okay, can you do anything about it? No, then don't worry. Can you, can you do about something about it? Yes. You know, like you go through all this thing and everything leads back to the idea of like, don't worry about it because um, ultimately like you don't have control. And I thought as I looked at that graph, I was like, oh, I love this. Like, this is like a flow chart, step-by-step solution to worry. Uh, and, it's, and it's very logical and it's very rational and it really like, hey, think it through. Um, it's great, but the problem is worry is more emotional than logical, right? Um, and this doesn't necessarily help us when the fear kicks in. You have to have somewhere to go with your worry. And this is why Paul says to take your worry directly to God. Present all of the things that make you anxious, all the things we're freaking out about right now. You take that stuff and you give it to God. And you say, here, you take this. Um, I, I, this is bigger than me. You take it because I can't take it. I can't, I can't do it. This was actually modeled by Jesus himself. Think about the night before Jesus is crucified, his last week on earth. He's going to be crucified. He knows that he's going to die a brutal public death. And the, the night before that, he goes with the disciples to a garden to pray. He, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm, going to, uh, I'm gonna set aside time to connect with my heavenly father. Um, and if, if I'm Jesus in that moment, I'm very worried. I'm very worried that I'm going to be crucified the next day. I know this is coming. I'm worried that it's going to hurt. I'm worried that um, it's just going to be humiliating. I'm worried that all my followers are going to leave. Like all the things that you might worry about in that moment. And, and Jesus is feeling the weight of this stuff. And, and he prays. He models this for us. Listen to his prayer in Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Do you know what that's like? Do you know how heavy that is? My guess is some of you have been there. Or maybe you're there now. And where you, you, you don't know how you can get up in the morning. You, you don't know how you're going to take the next step. And, and this is where Jesus is at. It's, it's not like he's not feeling it. And we can go, oh, well, he's God. He's got this. Y- yeah. But he's also fully human. And there's the weight of this on him. And he says, my soul is, is sorrowful even to death. It, it feels so heavy. Um, and yet, he's going through this dark night of the soul that many of us have been through in, in different ways. And yet, in that, he, he asked God, hey, not my will, but yours be done. Or, or, you know, if you could take this cup from me and do something else, but not my will, but your will be done. And he stands up and he meets his accusers. This doesn't fix everything emotionally when he prays to his heavenly father. It doesn't fix everything. He's praying drops of blood. He's, he's sweating. It's, it's intense. Um, but he goes to the very same place with his anxiety, with the things that would, would 
would be wor worrisome, he takes that to the same place that we do, that we can. He goes to his heavenly Father. And what he got from that is what we can get. Look at, again at what Paul says in Philippians 4, 7. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a peace that we can have that surpasses understanding. Now, there's a peace that we can have that we understand. There's some peace that's very understandable. You go like, oh, I was worried about the thing, but it worked out okay. Now I have peace. Yeah, I get that, right? Oh, my kid was sick, but they got better. I have peace. Oh, I get it. Oh, you know, financially things went bad, but we, we got an unexpected bonus check or something like that. Yeah, okay. It worked, it worked out. That's a peace that you have that you can understand. But Paul's going like next level with peace and saying there's a supernatural peace. There's a spirit peace, 2.0 kind of peace that you can have. And it surpasses all understanding. You can't run the math on it. You can't, it doesn't make sense, but you just feel a sense of peace. Have you ever had that kind of peace? Where everyone looks at you and goes, if I were you, I'd be really worried. If I were you, I'd freak out right now. And you're sitting there going, I don't know why, but it's okay. I'm not freaking out. I'm not worried. It's, God's got this. That's, that's the spirit-infused peace. That, that we can have, that's available to us. So when we're tempted to worry, rather than freak out, we can rejoice and we can take worrisome stuff to God and give it, put it somewhere and go, God, you need to handle this because I can't. And then I think we need to do one more thing and, and, and that's it. Number three, we need to take captive of every thought. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 10. Listen to what Paul says about what's really going on with us even when we're freaking out, right? Listen to what he says in Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The truth is, Paul says, yeah, we work in the flesh. We are people, we have our concerns, we... We sweat, we get tired, we get anxious, we, ha we have all the flesh stuff that goes along with being a human. But the real battle is going on in, in your heart, in your mind, uh, in, your, in your spirit, in your soul. That's where it's really at. And Paul says, we have, we have power there. We have the knowledge of God. What we understand about God should inform us uh, to think differently about what's going on in the world. He says, we have these weapons, these kind of likens it to warfare. And he says, we take captive every thought and make it obey Christ. Uh, I love that idea that we can take captive these thoughts. We can grab them and hold on to them and say, no, I'm going to make this thought even obedient to Christ. Here's the truth about what you think. And this is true. And, and you will feel this right now. We're all feeling this right now of all the news. Here's the truth. You can have a thought or you can let that thought have you. And everybody knows what that's like. You have a thought, you go, oh, that's a thing. Or you let it have you, you have this thought, and then you just go way down the road with it. Oh, and, and then this, and then this, and then this. And that thing just takes over and, and, and runs your life. Um, we need to take captive of that stuff and go like, okay, I noticed that I'm doing this. I need to, I, I need to choose a different way of, of, of thinking. 
Uh, for me, this is the value of reading the scripture. This is why we say get in the word every day, read the Bible every day. It's why we've been doing Core 52 as a church this year because it's an opportunity to get in there and read every day because every day you need to be reminded that the culture functions one way, but we are a different people and we need to think differently. This is the value of meditation, um, to meditate on scripture. I meditation for me is, is basically two things. I, I use it as a time to breathe and, and sort of clear my mind and slow down and not let all the thoughts run around. Um, and it's also a time to think about scripture. So every week, part of uh, the, the reading plan in Core 52, it'll say, hey, meditate on the scripture. Just, just take one verse and, and turn it over and over in your mind and let that stuff sort of reprogram the way you think. That's how you take captive of your thoughts because you start aligning yourself with the truth of God and it helps you to recognize the lies that are around you. Now, the timing of all this is weird, right? Um, we're talking about this today, and we're doing this uh, at a time that people are freaking out. We're not in the bird theater today because they're closed, and, and there's all this stuff about size of public gatherings and all that kind of stuff. And I thought about, you know, here, okay, we're going to say stop freaking out, and I didn't want to be tone deaf. So I didn't want to be the guy who's like, yo, would everybody just calm down a little bit, you know, because I, I don't want to be, and then people will be like, okay, boomer, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. Um, but I do want to say this, uh, at the risk of sounding tone deaf or something, I do want to say this. Um, when it comes to virus, when it comes to these macro level fears, um, and I say this to Christians, we have been here before. We have dealt with this before. This is not the first time uh, that people have been faced with this kind of, this kind of stuff. Um, in the year 165, and again in the year 251 AD, there was pretty large plagues that swept through the Roman Empire. Um, the, the mortality rate, you've probably heard a lot about that lately, the mortality rate of the plague was somewhere between 7% and 50%. That's a pretty wide range. I, don't, I was like, could they have been a little more accurate with their record keeping in the year 165? But somewhere between 7 and 50, I think we would all agree, that's really high compared to other numbers we've heard of almost anything else. So a lot of people are dying in, in the Roman world during that time, just wiping out large swaths of the population. Um, and, it, and it's pretty intense. Um, it, the, the response of the culture to the, to the plague was to run away from it. The, the, prominent, the most prominent doctor in Rome during, under Marcus Aurelius, when Marcus Aurelius was emperor the, emperor, the most prominent doctor was a guy named Galen. And Galen, when this, when this plague came, he left and went to the country and lived in his country home because he couldn't help anybody and just wanted to get away from it. That is a common response in the ancient world, that people would, would flee and, and, and get away from it. Through, uh, and, and a lot of people just stayed in their home and died. And people stayed and died who might have actually gotten better had someone taken care of them with just some basics like water and stuff. But people were, were staying, everybody was getting infected. Um, Thucydides wrote about it and he said this, people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of attention. So everyone, there's houses of people are dying because they're not getting the rest, they're not getting water, they're not getting even the basics. Christians in that time did not react the same way. They did not run for the hills. They stayed and took care of people. And sometimes they got sick as well, and sometimes they nursed people back to health. Uh, Dionysius wrote about this in, a, in an Easter letter uh, later. He wrote this. It says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty. 
never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning height commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. People took care of Christians because, and they took care of even just non-Christians, they just took care of people around them because they believed that this life is not all there is. And they had hope of that. And they said, I'm not living just for the time that we have here. They're thinking long-term. They're thinking big picture. And it's nice to say that, oh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But but this was people who were living it out and going, no, I really believe that. And it's going to change the way I I act. They were living out the mission um, because their hope was not about how this life is all going to work out. And what was true of them should be true of us. We're still those people. We're still those people that will run to help when other people want to, to run away. Um, and we should be uh, the most non-anxious people around. We should be the ultimate non-freak-out people because that, that's how Jesus was and we follow in his footsteps. So, so why should we stop freaking out? Well, two reasons. Number one, Things often work out ways and have a way of working out in, in ways that you don't even expect. Remember the manure crisis in 1894. Um, the reason there's no manure crisis in London, and you probably could have figured this out, the, the solution to the manure crisis was Henry Ford. By 1910, Henry Ford started developing a, a, a carriage that would pull itself and didn't need a horse. Um, Henry Ford said, once famously said, if, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. He didn't give them a faster horse. He gave them no horse at all. He gave them his car. And by 1917, the last horse left the streets of New York and the cities were cleaned up. And that was a solution to a crisis that nobody saw coming. Nobody could conceive of that answer to the problem. And when I read about that, I think, what do I freak out about right now that there's a solution coming and no one can see it coming? Like what, what looks like this is the worst be all end all that I, I better freak out about this. This is the worst thing ever when maybe there's a solution coming that no one can see. So that's the first thing I would say is we, we don't freak out because a lot of times things work out in ways you don't expect. But even greater than that, we serve a powerful God who is in control. We are the Jesus people. If you're a follower of him, you're the Jesus people. And you serve a God, you serve Jesus, who when the storm was blowing, he laid down in the boat and was sleeping because he wasn't freaking out about it. We serve a Jesus who when, every, when thousands of people needed to eat and all they had was a couple pieces of bread and a couple pieces of fish, he didn't freak out. He, he just made it happen. We serve a Jesus who saw his, one of his closest friends die. And yes, he cried about it, but he didn't freak out. He stood up and then he brought that person back to the dead. We're serving the Jesus who faced his own death with a great sense of peace. We're serving a Jesus who sympathizes with us in our pain, and he has promised to never let us fall. That's the hope that we have uh, as Jesus' people. 
that um, that we can keep our head when everyone else is around us is losing theirs. Um, we have a God who understands and who loves us and who knows us. And um, and even viruses and all that, like he, he can see it coming. Um, so so think about this when you're when you're tempted to worry. Um, take take captive those thoughts. Um, the things that make you worry, pray and give them to God um, and be people who rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we can gather, even if the whole group cannot gather together, but we are still able to get together through technology, through different means of, of coming together as friends and family. And I pray that um, in, this, in this time, we remember you, we remember your non-anxious presence in the world, and that you're, you have not disappeared from the world, but you are still with us, and uh, you, are, you are able to sympathize with us in our pain and our weakness. God, we cling to that, and we take all the things that we're worried about right now, we take and give those things to you. Uh, thank you, God. In, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.